Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90, reading from God's holy and inerrant word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we uh, begin to feed upon it, that it uh, truly would transform us, uh, that you have said your word is uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. You have said it is powerful. You have likened it to a sledgehammer, breaking the rocks and pieces into oil, which brings healing, to light, uh, which uh, scatters the darkness. And we pray that it would have all of its perfect work in us this morning, to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Over the past three weeks, I've been evaluating uh, how I have done uh, in this past year in terms of my management of time and how I can improve things uh, in the next year. And I tell you, I do this every year, and I don't think there's been a single year where I've been 100% satisfied with what I've done in the previous year. And if I've got to suffer, you've got to suffer right along with me. So I'm preaching on this passage. <laughs> no, that's not really the reason. I do want to encourage you uh, this morning. But this chapter really is a challenge to us to not waste time. I've had times where I have, uh, years where I've wasted time. And that used to mean in the past that I was not as efficient, as diligent, did not get as much work done as I would have liked to have done but I don't really evaluate it just based on efficiency and productivity. I think that's one aspect of wasting of time. But if it's the only aspect that you look at, uh, you're probably wasting time. And I wasted a lot of time by being ultra-diligent and ultra-hard-working in the past. Just think of it this way. Jesus took his disciples aside so that they could rest and have a vacation. And I don't think Jesus wasted any time. 
And so we ought not to be thinking simply in terms of productivity and work when we're thinking, I want to make sure I don't waste any time in this coming year. How do I manage my time? How do I number my days in a way that will honor the Lord? Uh, Jesus uh, it took time to enjoy a feast. Uh, he took time uh, to uh, talk one-on-one with Peter, James, and John. Now, was that a waste of time? You'd think he'd be much more efficient if he'd talked to tens of thousands of people and let lots of people hear the truths that he's saying. But no, he would take time one-on-one with individuals. And we know it's not a waste of time. It was a very strategic use of his time uh, with these apostles. Jesus spent lots of time in prayer. Now, there have been down through the years uh, many people who have testified that, yeah, prayer is an okay thing, but just don't spend too much time in prayer because it can be a waste. But you look at the life of Christ and you see how much time he spent in prayer. And, you know, he never wasted time. Prayer cannot be a waste. And yet to this day, sadly, I have to confess, I sometimes still in the back of my mind think, Phil, you're wasting time. You need to get to work. Don't be praying. And I know it's wrong, and yet our hearts many times are mixed up. We're affected by our culture and what we view as a wasted life, what we view as wasted time. Productivity is not the measure of our life. Christ is, and God's Word is the measure of, uh, of uh, what is uh, a balanced life. Uh, God's Word commands us to sleep. So sleep is obviously not a waste of time. I used to think of it as a waste of time. Tried to get my schedule down to only four hours of sleep a night. What a waste, you know, sleeping more than that. And, and, and the scripture says, no, it is not good to stay up late, to rise up early, for so he gives his beloved sleep. On the other hand, Proverbs says, if you sleep too much, you are wasting time. So how do you gain a balance in life? Well, I would say you cannot gain a balance by looking at Phil Kaiser and trying to do what Phil Kaiser is doing or looking at anybody else. You're just going to add stress to your life. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ knowing that His purposes and His goals for your life are the balance that you need to have. And that could mean different things at different seasons in your life. So what I want to do today is I want to give an exposition of Psalm 90 especially focusing on verse 12, where he says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And uh, you can see in your outlines, I've pulled ten common mistakes that people have made. I've pulled them from uh, this psalm and uh, the passage in Numbers 13 through 14, which forms the, the background to this psalm. The first mistake is to think, I don't need time management Um, I can do things pretty efficiently just uh, in my head. And uh, I think Moses knew better. Uh, In this funeral psalm, Moses pleads with God, teach us, teach us, Lord. We need you to teach us. We're not going to do this right on our own. If you have not carefully mapped out your time, it is guaranteed that you are using your time uh, inefficiently. Good time management never comes naturally. It didn't even come naturally for Moses. All you have to do is read the chapter 17 of Exodus and you will see time management did not come naturally to Moses. 
He was so stressed out with these long lines of people that he was trying to counsel all on his own, and he was wasting their time as well. Jethro had to come to him and say, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. You're certainly wearing these people out. This is not the way to do it. And he taught him some time management. Now, in this psalm, he says that the, the children of Israel were wasting their lives in that previous generation. They had wasted uh, their lives. Look at verse 9, for example. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. Verses 1 through 11 are preoccupied with death, with God's anger, and with wasted lives. And you'll notice I read the title there. It's a psalm of Moses. And if you compare this with the psalm that he writes in Deuteronomy 33, you'll see a lot of similarity in language. And so many commentators think this was written toward the end of Moses' life and that this was uh, a reflection on the previous 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He's, um, he's uh, just gone through seeing an entire generation die off. He's probably uh, had to lead more funerals than any other pastor out there. And uh, the only people left alive from the previous generation are Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And, and so what he's reflecting upon in this psalm is there was an entire generation that had wasted their lives, totally wasted uh, their lives. And it wasn't because they didn't work hard or they weren't efficient with their time so much. It was because of their attitudes, attitudes of grumbling and bitterness and, and anger. So two people could be doing the same thing. One person has an utter waste of his life and the other person his life is counting for all of eternity and it's not just the outward things that they're doing some of it reflects upon our attitudes toward the lord and are we living our life through faith in verses 13 through 17 we read a beautiful testimony of paul's faith he did not grow discouraged he did not um, uh, become cynical and distressed because so many people had failed to number their days like they should have instead you look at those verses and you see he's got tremendous confidence and faith that what the locusts have eaten can be restored. That even if we have wasted a number of years of our life, we can make up for lost time. And it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful testimony of what people can do and what God can do through them if they are willing to number their days by God's wisdom and by God's grace. We're also prone to waste time. When I worked uh, quite a number of years ago in Maplecrest uh, Care Center, a nursing home, um, there were a number of people who told me that they had wasted their lives. In fact, there was this one businessman in particular, very successful businessman, probably very efficient with his time, hardworking, had uh, from the world's perspective been a success. And yet <clears throat> when he talked with me this one time, he, he told me, I just feel like my whole life has been a waste. And I think we need to evaluate what does it mean to waste our lives? What does it mean to waste time in a day? Frequently when people come to the end of their lives, that's when they evaluate these types of things. Or when you go to a funeral and you realize, wow, I want my life to count more than what this guy's life counted. But what Moses is saying in this psalm, don't wait till the end of your life. Don't wait till you get to a funeral, because this was a funeral sermon, before you start thinking about how your life can count. Look at verse 14. He says, Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, 
that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. He says that's the ideal. Uh, You get to the end of your life and you don't have any regrets. You feel, I have lived a full life. I am comforted by my life. I've enjoyed my life. I've enjoyed the fellowship with God. Now, sure, the world may say that certain aspects of my life were not a success, but I believe I have God's smile of approval and that He is willing to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Look at verse 15. This is, uh, this is an admonition to those who already had some wasted years. You know, they're not yet. They have not been able to say, say verse 14, but verse 15 He says, make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and the years in which we have seen evil. In other words, he's saying, Lord, help me to make up for lost time. At least now, from now on, let my life begin to count for you. The last verse says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What Moses is doing in the oversweep of this psalm is telling people, make God the very center and heart of everything that you think and do, and you're going to have a life with full satisfaction. You're going to have a life without regrets. You're going to have a life where every moment has counted for eternity. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have fellowship with God. You can only learn to number your days from God. And so God's the foundation, spending times of intimacy with Him, getting, a, getting a, a picture from Him of what He wants to do, asking Him every day, Lord, what do you want me to do with my time this day? I want to please you. Whether it's relaxing with other people, whether it's working, I want to please you. Okay, so that's a kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on here. Second mistake that I want to look at that we can frequently make is to act as though God did not create and thus own time. Now, the biblical idea that time was created was a revolutionary concept. None of the pagan religions of that day saw time as being created. Time's always been around from their perspective, and God is just as subject to the ravages of time and the vicissitudes of time as we are. And uh, so it's not a created reality. And so when the Bible starts off with the words, in the beginning, God, those are revolutionary words. What they're saying is there was a beginning. And at that beginning, God already existed. God was before time. And that's where this psalm (coughs) begins as well. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So God's controlling Time, verse 2, goes on to describe eternity before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, it may not seem too profound. You know, we've grown up knowing God's created everything, but it really is profound. It's an incredible thought. Since God created time, that means He is the owner of time. He is the Lord of time. And we do not have permission to treat time as if We are the owners of time, and we can use it any way that we please. Now, time needs to be looked at from the perspective of God's lordship. He alone is God. He alone is the Lord of time. And thus, Ephesians 5.16 tells us that we must redeem the time because the days are evil. What does it mean to redeem something? Well, this was a, a concept in the Old Testament. There was the kinsman redeemer who was a family member uh, who, when one of the relatives lost a piece of property or sold themselves into slavery or something like that, he would come along and he would redeem these people and return the property back to its rightful owner. 
Well, when we redeem the time, we're doing exactly that. God is the rightful owner, so we're going out into the marketplace <coughs> of life and we're redeeming back time that's been used for flesh, used for the world, used for the devil, and we're giving it over to the Lord who is the rightful owner of it. That's what it means to redeem time. God is the owner of time. We are simply stewards of time. <coughs> and He claims everything that we do. The time that we spent for sleep belongs to Him. The time that we spend in, in recreation and in work and in eating and all of the different things that we do belongs to Him. So we need to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to use my time to your glory? He says, you're not the Lord over time. Your spouse is not the Lord over time. Your children are not the Lord of your time. God alone is the Lord, creator, maker, owner of time. And you've got to look to Him. Every day you pray that. A third mistake is to act as though God does not continue to control time. Now, there are several scriptures here showing God's control over time. Uh, verses 1 through 2 imply God existed before time. He's sovereign over time. Verse 4 shows God outside of time. But then in the following verses, God describes how He controls all of the times and the seasons. He lets some people live 70 years. He lets other people live 80 years. Some people die in childhood. Some people die very uh, young, but He is the one who determines how much time you're going to be allotted and how that time uh, will be used. Uh, he gives time to some. He takes away time from others. Now, I think sometimes we doubt this. Intellectually, we know it. But when time gets impossibly short for accomplishing something God's called us to do, we think, hey, this is even impossible for God. And we just give up because the time just seems uh, too short. Uh, have any of you guys ever asked God, Lord, I need more time for a project? Uh, I've asked God this many, many times. Oh, Lord, I need more time. I just can't get this done uh, in time. Please help me. And God can answer that in a number of different ways. He can answer it, first of all, by, by um, changing you, by making you more efficient, or He can change your circumstances uh, he can bring other people in together to, to help you through something. Sometimes, though, he miraculously changes the very structure of time. Is this not what he did with Joshua? He gave him an extra, what was it, 12 hours? But anyway, he gave him uh, an extra day. I mean, <laughs> and uh, this is what he did with Hezekiah, where the sun literally went back on the dial. In other words, they went backwards in time. And he added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Now, whether God does this miraculously or whether he does it through providence, I think we need to realize God's sovereign. He can do anything he wants with time. He, is the con he continues to be the controller of that time, just like he controls every other aspect of, uh, of his creation. Now, <clears throat> sometimes God takes away time from us, and he's done this... Uh, uh, with a number of you recently by making you sick, you know, maybe stomach flu or something like that, or getting into a car accident. you got to, quote-unquote, waste a lot of time looking for another vehicle. Okay, God's sovereign in how much time He gives, how much time He takes away. But the knowledge that God is in control of your time, I think, can be a tremendously liberating concept. When God brought Israel to Canaan to conquer the land, He brought them in the fullness of time. Everything was ready for them to conquer the land, but they're stressed out. They're very fearful of going in. They don't think that they're ready, and they don't think that the land is ready uh, for them to take over. 
and they got scared. And there have been times in a very similar way in which I have been bent out of shape in traffic, uh, just all stressed out because I'm going to be late getting to some meeting. Kathy knows this, (laughs) even as a pastor many times. I've not fully lived out the reality of this truth. And it's taken some years to realize, hey, God is the controller of time. And if there is an accident that slowed me down, if it's just my stupidity that I didn't start off in time, that's a different question. But you've given yourself plenty of time, even some leeway. There's a car accident and you're going to be late for your appointment. You can relax in the knowledge God's the one who for a very good and perfect purpose has taken that time away from you. And it it, it can be something very, very uh, liberating. Knowing that God is sovereign over your time will keep you from blowing your cool when the bozo in front of you is only driving 29 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour speed zone, right? And you know exactly what I'm talking about, with us men especially. One mile an hour makes all the difference in the world. But um, you could just relax and say, okay, Lord, you want me to go a little bit more slowly today? Give me more time to meditate on your scripture or talk to my wife or something else like that. Realizing that God controls your time can be very, very liberating. Let's be practical with this. Let me give you a a way in which you can reflect in your schedule that you really believe that God controls your time, that you're not the controller of your time. One of the ways that um, a number of time management people do it, they call it flex time, or some people call it catch-up time, some people call it fudge time. But somewhere in your schedule, maybe toward the end of your week, you put in a block of time where you've got nothing scheduled. This is uh, just in case God sovereignly puts an emergency into your life or some other thing comes into your life. It doesn't make you all stressed out because you realize, okay, I can't do this project, but I can catch up at the end of the week. And if uh, you, God has prospered your time so you get everything done, then you feel real good because there are a whole list of things you want to get done but just cannot fit into your schedule. You say, yay, 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 I can grab some of these things and I can get them done during this flex time. This is a very realistic, practical way of saying, Lord, you're sovereign of my schedule. Anytime you want, you can blue pencil and change my plans and I've got it written right in here. This, you can call it sovereign God time, you know, that you're catching up and saying, Lord, if you want an emergency, something to come into my life, I've already built into my schedule an ability to be able to flex with you. You're the sovereign over my time. I highly recommend that you do that. Some of us have no margin in our lives. Or it's such a tiny margin. It looks like the papers I used to write that uh, we try to fit, fit as much substance into the page as you possibly can you know nine point text and god says no don't do that don't do that have flexibility and uh, really reflect in your life that i am the sovereign okay a fourth mistake that we make when we are harried and flustered is to act as though time is not on our side and i have many times to my shame treated time as being an enemy it's just, I, and I still fall into it, don't I, Kathy? Occasionally, I, I start feeling the tension rising in my neck, you know, because I'm getting behind schedule and I can't get things done and I have to remind myself, oh, just relax and realize God's doing this because He loves you. God's on your side. Time is not against you. The bulk of verses 1 through 11 shows people who see time as their enemy. Now, even there, there are hints that uh, it's not really true. You know, verse 11, or excuse me, 
uh, verse 1 um, shows that God's on our side throughout all time. And then verse 6 shows that, okay, yeah, the grass withers. And we focus on the withering part. But there was a time, too, when the grass is prospering. It's flourishing. And, and so even the negative and the positive both come from the hand of a loving God. But I think it's in verses 14 through 17 where we see time as a friend. Verse 14 Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. So both affliction and the days of gladness are from a loving hand. Verse 17, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, I think that the whole psalm is a declaration that time is on your side if you are on God's side, but the time is against you if you're not submitting to the Lord. Okay? Either way, when you're walking in right relationship with the Lord, time is your friend. Time is your enemy when you're not walking in right relationship with the Lord. And so the overarching principle here is that God always gives you enough hours in the day to do everything that He wants you to get done, done. Doesn't always give you enough hours in the day to get everything you want to get done or somebody else wants you to get done, but he does give you all the hours you need to get what he wants accomplished. Ecclesiastes 3 says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then he lists out some of those times and his purposes. And I think one of the reasons why we fail to see God's purposes and situations is we're not saturated with the principles of God's Word. We don't have anything that the Spirit can take from God's Word and help us to apply it. That's what wisdom is. It's the Spirit's application of biblical principles to new situations in life. Ecclesiastes 3.17 says, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there shall be a time there for every purpose and for every work. We're going to be judged for how we number our days and how we handle what he says here is a time for every purpose and for every work now it's extremely challenging principle because you just realize we're going to blow it this coming year you know we may blow it again but they're also very very comforting words when you think about it uh, deeply when you have planned everything that you to the best of your ability, your finite abilities, and that's all God expects you to do, within your finite abilities, you say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such, and God makes you, you know, miss a flight in Denver or something else like that, you can just totally relax and say, you know, God's the one who has taken this. He loves me. He's got a good purpose in this for me. And I can, I can relax in His will. Time is on my side. I do not need to fret or fume. A few months ago, I told you the story about my, uh, my mother, uh, Grandma Kaiser, um, missing a flight in Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, you know, it could have been very stressful for her. And she just trusted the Lord and took a train. But then the flight actually ended up uh, taking off and it crashed and everybody on board uh, died from that. So she knew from hindsight, wow, that was not a waste of time. That was a brilliantly planned move by the Lord. But even if she had never known the purpose of that missed flight, she could have had an absolute confidence, you know, God is not against me and time is not against me. It is for me. That's what Romans says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not even time can be against you. 
Okay, that's a principle we got to have deeply, deeply rooted in our hearts. And it's a principle in just the last three, four years has really helped me to, to begin to relax a little bit more uh, when, when time gets tight. A fifth mistake that we make is to fail to take inventory of our time. And verse 12 talks about that, speaks of numbering our days. Numbering our days is accounting, right? It's time management. Now, I'm not going to get into a time management course this morning, but uh, I did bring with me some handouts. If you want my recommendations of my favorite books, it's not the most recent and newest, but I really like uh, these books on time management. I think everybody ought to do a little study of how to be better at time management. But what I want to do this morning is I want to deal with a few basic principles that are hinted at in this psalm but are much more explicit in Numbers chapter 13 through 14. So if you turn there with me, this uh, forms the background to what Moses is talking about uh, in, in this passage. So this is going to be points uh, 6 through 10. I think the most, first and most obvious reason for God's anger in Psalm 90 and, uh, and his complaint that they have not been numbering their days as they ought was that the Israelites and the previous generation uh, had lived in terms of their own goals and purposes instead of God's. I think that's probably the most basic reason. And so uh, it may seem so basic we don't even need to, uh, you know, it doesn't even deserve mentioning from us, but the truth of the matter is we Christians don't live every moment of our lives to God's glory. Um, you know, this past week maybe you watched a movie. Did you really ask yourself, why did I watch this movie? How do I glorify God through eating, through drinking? And some people think, oh, Kaiser, you're just getting legalistic on us here. Uh, you know, everything, really, you have to think through to God's glory. Yes, you do. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we really have to consciously think through stuff like that. There are movies that will not glorify God to watch. There are ways of glorifying God and watching a movie and the same movie not glorifying God. And uh, so I'm not saying is watch, don't watch a movie. I'm saying that we've got to think through, Lord, what do you want me to do with my time right now? Uh, maybe a perfectly legitimate entertainment I could be engaged in, but because my work is not done and I'm not honoring my parents, uh, they've asked me to do the work, it would not be honoring God. I'm wasting my time by watching the movie. Okay, so we've got to think through these, these types of issues. In Edward Dayton's book on time management, he said, if you don't care where you are going, any road will get you there, and it really doesn't make any difference how much time you take. And I think that's the way many Christians live their lives. They don't know where they're going. They don't have goals. They don't have purposes for the next uh, 20 years, let alone the next 100 years, they don't have goals for even the next few months of their lives, and they've never allowed God's purpose to be their purpose in their lives. In Numbers 13, verse 2, God had promised to give Israel the land of Canaan. Now, He had promised that a number of times in the past, so that's a settled issue. You're going to go into the land of Canaan, so He does not send the spies into the land to determine, shall we go in, shall we not go in? No, they're supposed to go in, here is the purpose he gives in verses 17 through 19. 
Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. So he didn't want them to be naive. Even though God is sovereign, he fights on our behalf, we've got to fight with strategies. We've got to be going in and knowing what are we up against. And that's what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to be doing, uh, going on a task-finding, uh, a fact-finding uh, mission. But what do they do? As the facts start coming in, they start toying with the idea, we need to ditch the task that God has given to us. Okay, they gradually allowed the land that they spied to determine their agendas and goals. They were driven by circumstances rather than by the vision that God had given to them which automatically means they were not living by faith. They had gotten the cart before the horse. Okay, And we do that many, many times. We get deflected from God's purposes simply because we're driven by the tyranny of the urgent, by the events that are around us, instead of by the purpose God has put into our lives. Let me just give you a concrete example. And I think you could think of any number of uh, homes in America where this example would be true. <clears throat> a dad comes home, said, uh, you know, full day. Now, at, at work, he'd get fired if he didn't have planning and goals and everything working out. He, he, he's planned that. But when he comes home, he doesn't have the foggiest notion what he's going to do when he gets there. He has no plans for what he's going to say to his family, what kind of ministry he's going to engage in, uh, what kinds of shopping or anything else. He goes home and he sees the TV on. He plops down into a sofa, starts channel surfing, finds an interesting program, and before you know it, he's wasted four hours of his life. He hadn't intended to do that, but the opportunity, oh, that looks interesting, now has become a goal in his life. So what he's doing is he is being event-driven, circumstance-driven, not driven by vision, not driven by goals that he has set in his life. And uh, James says we must not do that. We must not allow events to dictate our ever-changing purposes. James says this is basically being a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, being tossed like a wave to and fro. Every time something new comes along, okay, you go in that direction. He says faith is the opposite. Faith, by definition, is looking to the future. It's driven by vision. It's driven by goals. It's driven by God, what God wants you to do. And it doesn't worry about the obstacles. It deals with those obstacles, but it's always looking to the future. Those are two totally different ways of life. And many Christians are those double-minded Christians in James, constantly driven and dictated by the events that they see in life. You cannot... If you've never established personal goals for every area of your, your life, you've not even started with the basics of numbering your days. And yet, how many Christians in America could rattle off to you what their goals are for seven, eight, nine, ten areas of their, their lives? I do have another handout. In fact, I brought a bunch of handouts with me today. But I do have another handout, probably not enough for all of you here. I was only expecting about 15. Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> Wasn't expecting this many people. But uh, on some of the handouts, I probably have about 20 uh, of them there. But what it does is it goes through the sweep of our lives, and it helps you to give, okay, general goals, but also to give very concrete, measurable goals. And for those specific goals to really work, 
you've got to, at the end of the year, be able to say, okay, I've met 40%, not just, mm, I don't know, maybe I think I've done well on him. It's got to be specific enough where you can measure off how far you have gotten uh, by the end of the year. And here's some of the areas that um, it covers. It helps you to develop goals for your spiritual life, for your family life, your Christian service, your social life, your intellectual development, your physical development. That means, you know, lifting weights uh, or whatever, uh, what your physical goals might be. Your occupational goals, your financial goals, and your emotional development. So like I say, if you want a copy... Uh, you can get one from me um, afterwards. Maybe if we do just one per family, we might have enough. But I can guarantee you, if you're not aiming at something, that, if you don't have a goal toward which you're going, if you're not aiming at something, you will hit it. You'll hit nothing, right? <laughs> if you're aiming at nothing, you'll hit nothing. And what's even worse, if you don't have a, a, a purpose that glorifies God, automatically it does not glorify God. And what is or is not to the glory of God is sin. And so the reason for the wrath in Psalm 90 was that Israel had abandoned the most basic principle of godly time management that we must have goals that spring from God and from His Word. We must be driven by God's agenda. Verse 11 says, Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Very interesting verse, because that verse says that there is a... Proportion, I don't know what the expression is, proportional relationship between God's anger and the fear that's due to Him that we have not given to Him. So this is talking again. God is upset. He is not like it when our whole lives are lived as if we own time, we're the creator of time, we're not going to submit to God's lordship of our time. Time management is not an option. Time management is something God expects us to do. The seventh mistake that we sometimes make is to fail to anticipate possible obstacles to our goals. When Moses sent out the spies, the purpose was to see what obstacles were going to be there, what walls need to be torn down, okay? what enemies need to be conquered. It's not to give up. It's a fact-finding mission. Proverbs 18.13 says, What a shame. Yes, how stupid to decide before knowing the facts. And I want you to turn with me to Luke 14. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14 and verses 28 through 33. And this is a passage that shows how important it is to anticipate possible obstacles when you're making plans. Okay, 14 beginning at verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way, way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We must not only have everything that we do flowing uh, out of godly goals, but we need to also look at what the costs are to implementing those goals. And I think that was why God sent the spies into Canaan. So a seventh principle God was giving to them to help them number their days was to evaluate all of the possible obstacles. I think you need to write it down. 
okay, guys, you're talking with your family. Here's what we're going to try to do, but let's think through. What are the potential obstacles, the walls that might get in the way of being able to accomplish that? Marlon uh, Maddox, one of his favorite expressions was, people don't plan to fail, they just fail to plan. And that first generation of Israelites simply was not uh, numbering their days wisely. The second generation did. They took 0.7 seriously, they took 0.8 seriously. 0.7, look at the obstacles. 0.8, let's look at the solutions to those obstacles. That's why they went into the land of Canaan. They weren't going in to see whether or not they were going to conquer. They were going in to see what are the obstacles that we've got to be strategically thinking about as we go in and obey God's mandate to conquer. And so it's brainstorming. When your mind is kind of frozen because you're problem-focused, just realize I've got to shake myself of that. If this is truly a goal from God, I've got to begin to be solution uh, focused and what are God's solutions to this and if you're having a hard time thinking like that what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to get together with somebody who has faith who's got a reputation for faith and say could you help me brainstorm on how I could come up with solutions because I can't see any way through this obstacle now God is controlling your time right he's controlled all your circumstances Romans 8:28 guarantees it all things are working together for your good there's always a way of escape says first Corinthians 10 31 so that means that if we brainstorm and we ask God's spirit for wisdom he's going to give us audacious solutions to those horrible obstacles he's given us audacious goals right so these are going to be some probably audacious solutions to get around those obstacles that Satan is throwing in the way the ninth mistake that we frequently make is to be unwilling to take risks now, I've had people down through the years, just a number of times, pass up a remarkable, wonderful opportunity. And they, they're, 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 the expression that's been given to me is, I'm not a risk taker. And I'm thinking it's such a minimal risk. And they don't realize risk is unavoidable. What they've done is they have turned down an opportunity here because of a present risk. They don't realize what they've embraced is a future risk that is far greater. But that's often the future. You know, they don't worry about that because they're present-oriented. Let me, let me assure you, risk is unavoidable, unless you're God. Uh, you know, God has no risk because He knows all things, owns all things, you know, controls all things. He's all-powerful. But if you're not God, every decision you make is going to have some risk of failure. Failure is not a problem. Every person who's been successful, every hero that you look up to in life has had numerous, numerous failures. If you never fail, it's because your goals are too low. You're not, you're not, you're not going after the things God's called you to. So don't ever be frustrated if there is a failure. Sometimes the failures are actually not failures. They're God's rerouting you to something that's going to be an even greater and more glorious uh, success than what you were looking for in the first place. But anyway, that's going down a rabbit trail. Uh, nobody can avoid risk. All you're doing is you're trading one risk for an even worse risk many times. Joshua and Caleb were quite opposite. They said in verse 30, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Why could they say that? They saw exactly the same facts, but the previous generation, they had grasshopper theology. 
They saw the giants. They were focused on the giants and they just saw themselves as so small. There's no way that they were going to be able to win. But Joshua and Caleb refused to have grasshopper theology. They said it doesn't matter how big the problems are. God is bigger than the problems, right? And if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the attitude of faith that, uh, that they had. And so they're, they're willing to take on risks if God is calling them to take on their risks. When it comes to time management, one risk is losing a huge portion of your life. People think, oh, that's not such a big risk. It's a huge risk. When you think of it in terms of eternity, it's huge. So let me read you something uh, from Robert Lee. He likened the use of time to a bank account. He said, if you had a bank that credited your account each morning with $86,400 that carried no balance from day to day, allowed you to keep no cash in your account, and finally, every evening, canceled whatever part of the account, uh, amount you had failed to use during the day, what would you do? Draw out every cent, of course. Well, you have such a bank, and its name is Time. Every morning, it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night it rules off as lost whatever of this you have failed to invest to good purposes. It carries no balances. It allows no balances. It allows no overdrafts. Each day the bank named Time opens a new account with you. Each night it burns the records of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. And it ought to grieve us to burn minutes just as surely as it would grieve us to burn $10 bills. You know, you see your kids burning all your $10 bills. Ah, what's going on? Well, that's exactly what's happening when you waste time. And again, remember our first points. Wasting time does not mean being more diligent. It means having the balance that God has called you to have, walking in His sight before Him. It might mean sitting down and watching a movie with your kids, or it might mean going out for a walk and talking with somebody, but you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to burn it. Uh, here's what Jonathan Edwards made as part of his daily resolutions. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved to never lose one moment of time to improve it the most profitable way I can. Now when we do that, the dividends are high. They are incredibly high. In fact, that's the last point here. Uh, the last common mistake is to fail to see the benefits of time management. And there are enormous benefits of time management. Verses 14 through 17 list out some of those benefits. Not all of them, surely. But many of these are intangible benefits, like the one even in verse 12, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He didn't say, let's number our days. Let's engage in time management so we can get more work done. God doesn't really need your work. You know, all of the work that He has commanded uh, godly saints in the last 6,000 years to do, he could get done just like that. All you have to do is say it and it would be done. It's not like he needs the work. He's given us opportunities to play and to rest and to fellowship and to work and to engage in all of these things. Why? So that we can gain a heart of wisdom. So that we can grow in our relationship with him. So we can learn what it means tangibly to live by faith, to walk in the power of His Holy Spirit. That's why He's given us these opportunities. It's a developmental thing. God is developing saints for all eternity through the things we are going through right now. And time management pays incredible dividends. Let's read verses 13 through 17 again. 
And as I read these verses, notice the satisfaction of life that's described in contrast to the wasted lives of those who died in the wilderness. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So those verses are talking about growing in fellowship with God satisfaction of life rejoicing all of our days yes even the bad hair days you can rejoice in god experiencing god coming through in 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 your life you know when you see god coming through against all obstacles against all odds but he's coming through just like he came through for joshua and caleb what does it do it stirs up even greater faith greater confidence in god greater love for god God's given these things to cause us to grow. And I don't know about you, but for me, I want 2010 to count for all of eternity. I want it to be a time where all of my work, my pleasure, my, my, uh, my fasting, my feasting, uh, everything I do is done with a goal to pleasing God and serving Him. And you know what? Even your watching of movies with your kids can count for eternity. It can be laying up treasures in heaven. Don't think of it just in terms of productivity and work. Think of it comprehensively in terms of all of life. Now, it may be you're discouraged just like uh, I was discouraged when I looked over my past year and thinking, what have I accomplished? But you need to realize this psalm is my psalm. God's given this psalm as a gift to you. And he says, you know, don't worry about what the locusts have eaten. Start right now with today and God can pour into your life more than you can handle he can give you satisfaction and it's my desire that he would crown your life with his mercies with his love with his satisfaction in this next year let's pray father thank you for your forgiveness thank you that you wipe away the slate uh, of the past and with paul we can forget those things which are behind Uh, whatever has not been laid up in the bank of heaven uh, we don't need to worry we can start again today help us not to grow discouraged as we look at the times where we have wasted life but help us to press ever upward into the upward calling that you have given to us in christ jesus may this next year be a prosperous year a year where our attitudes our words our actions everything we do uh, is pleasing in your sight Uh, a year in which we grow stronger and stronger together as a congregation May you be pleased, Father, with everything that we do. Prosper the work of our hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.